Welcome to the Trinity Galewood podcast. Here you'll find live messages recorded during our weekly services at Trinity. We are a community that desires to look, live, and love more like Jesus. We're located at 1701 North Narragansett in Chicago and meet every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Trinity Galewood podcast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who works in wonderful ways, who challenges us uh, not only in how we look at ourselves and our own uh, our own lives, but just our relationships that we have with each other. And I pray, Lord, that as we lean into those relationships, uh, may we always see that those in light of how you love us and how you continue to care and guide us. So may your spirit guide and lead us today um, during this journey. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Psalms, it says in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And while this sounds so simple and comforting for us, truthfully, if we were to be honest, I don't think it's so easy to dwell in unity, especially as brothers and sisters. Uh, This is a picture here of me and my brother, all right? And yes, we are wearing matching sweatshirts. Those were gifts uh, from my sister-in-law for Christmas. That's my mom in the middle there. And if you were to meet my brother Tom, who's younger than me, just by a couple years, you would notice that there's a lot of similarities between us. But if you were to like ask a couple of questions and start to learn more about who we are, you would quickly see that we have a lot of things that are very different just between him and I, and he's my only sibling. Uh, for example, my brother is an engineer by trade. He lives in Louis, or Lexington, Kentucky, and he, uh, he loves math, he loves fine print details, and he loves to keep it to the facts. Whereas I am a pastor who loves big print, deep conversations, and great stories. Very different between him. And growing up, it became rather clear that my brother was the smart one and I was the athlete. And if he was here, he would agree with this statement. And I remember this um, coming to the forefront in just one clear story when I was in high school. Uh, Let me explain. So, uh, like I said, my brother is younger than me, and the school that we went to uh, was a public high school outside of St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, the high school that we were supposed to go to was crowded, uh, and so they were only able to fit 10th, 11th, and 12th grade in that school building, which meant that uh, 7th, 8th, and 9th were all in one building. Now, I was in 9th grade. My brother was in 7th grade. I also told you that my brother is very advanced in math, right? And just so happened to work out that when he entered in the seventh grade and I was in ninth grade, that he was so advanced in math and I was so average, is how I'm going to tell the story, (laughs) in math, 
that we were in the same exact math class. I had it first period, he had it second period. Now this worked out really well for me because when we would come home and we would have to study for this math exam or work on our homework, I generally got to just copy what my brother wrote down and such things like that. And, uh, and as that continued forward, the day finally came where the report card was sent home. And I remember this clear as day when my mom opened up the report cards and she looked at the math section, knowing that her two sons right here were in the same exact math class. My brother uh, received an A in the class because he's really smart, and I received a B. And I remember my mom having this tough task of keeping the unity because this is exactly what she said to me. I remember this sitting at the kitchen counter. She said this, David, it's not that you're stupid. (laughs) It's that your brother is exceptional. (laughs) Mom, if you're listening to this on the podcast, Merry Christmas, right? And if my parents were here, I would share this story because it's something that we laugh about. It was something that my mom was trying to, being put in a tough situation, was trying to keep the unity, right, of the family. Uh, This is a famous statement, so much so that at my brother's wedding, where I was the best man, I retold this story and let my sister-in-law know that she was receiving an exceptional man, (laughs) all right? But isn't it true that that family can be really tough to keep the unity. I mean, let me just ask you, you came off of a holiday season where you probably got some family time, right? And maybe this meme feels very real for you, that family drama has come and hopefully has passed. I find it interesting because for me, I know, I remember vividly being very excited to go off on that family vacation and spend all the time with family. And then we find ourselves days later being like, I just really wanna get back into my own rhythm and routine. Or or maybe family time for you kind of just gets filled with like, all right, we get past the surface level conversation and then it starts to get really real and and gossiping and we kind of go into our own separate rooms and only if they did things the way that we did them, they wouldn't be struggling as much. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand if you say those kinds of things. Or, or maybe, maybe your family has just figured out that the best way to deal with this is just to avoid any kind of real deep conversation knowing that, hey, we can't even talk about these kinds of things because we want unity. But, but the reality is, is that keeping the unity isn't something that just is a struggle for families. It also is something that we see in all of our relationships. Maybe you've already had to go back to work or maybe you're dreading tomorrow when you have to go back to work and deal with that person who just is fueled by drama. Or, or you have that person in your life who just constantly talks about all of their achievements and success but can never admit their own failure or fault. 
Or maybe you have that person in your social media timeline who how in the world can they be supporting that idiot? Somebody's with me here. (laughs) Unity is not easy to dwell in. It's a good thing, but it's hard to live out. And that's why for the next four weeks, we're going to start a series called A Reconciler's Journey. And I'm excited about this journey that we're going to go on because we're going to look at a family in the Old Testament, a family of two brothers, Jacob and Esau, and learn from them and learn about this journey that they go on of reconciliation. Because the reality is, is that you and I, as followers of Jesus, are called to a ministry of reconciliation. This comes from 2 Corinthians 5. It says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You're called to live in unity, but you're called to a ministry of reconciliation. It's interesting because at the heart of who God is, is he proclaims that he wants to be one who brings reconciliation to this world and to us and how we interact with each other. And when I'm saying reconciliation, what I mean by that is a removal of a barrier, a removal of, 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 of distance between us as human beings and as people. I've used this image before, but I think it's worth repeating. This guy, Miroslav Volv, he talks about uh, this idea of reconciliation and how big reconciliation is. And he uses the example of, of a door. And he says, for reconciliation to happen, it's like a door that has two locks on it. And these two locks need to be opened so that there isn't a barrier anymore. One of the locks that Miroslav Volv talks about is this lock of forgiveness, that we need to understand that for the barrier to be removed, there has to be an act of forgiveness. Yet it's not just forgiveness upon itself. The second barrier that needs to be unlocked for this opening is justice, that these two together need to be unlocked so that reconciliation can happen so that we can dwell together in unity. Now, those are really big things. It's going to take a long time for us to unpack. And, and I just want to give you some, some steps forward in this journey of reconciliation. Because I really believe it is that. The first step for us to understand here today is we need to name and embrace. And I'd love for you to write this on your notes here, your message notes, that we need to begin with naming and embracing. Because we will see in this story of Jacob and Esau that this happens and that reconciliation is something that we're called ultimately to. So let's look at that story of these two brothers. We read this here. Claudia read these words for us this morning. 
said, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Uh, we read that these are the parents of Jacob and Esau. And, uh, and we read that there are, they're pregnant with twins. We read verse 22, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? It's kind of an interesting little note that we get here in this account. We read that they have prayed for children, and now, uh, now Rebecca is pregnant with twins, and there's something going on inside of her that's wrestling. Now, um, I don't know if that was like experienced as morning sickness or a loss of appetite or swollen ankles, and those are all things that my wife told me. I have no idea what it's like to be pregnant. I'm going to pretend to even have any sort of understanding. All the women are shaking their head like, yeah, shut up right now, all right? Uh, but what we do know is that Rebecca is saying, why is this happening to me? And God has this interesting response. He says this, the two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you. They shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. There's all sorts of interesting connotations that are happening here, but at its base level, we read that God is saying that there's going to be some division, that between these brothers, there's going to be some fighting and division, some opposition. This isn't some perfect family that never got into any kind of argument, and where there's division and where there's a barrier, there will have to be reconciliation. God is saying that there will have to be reconciliation. And so we continue here. It says this in verses 24 through 26. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So they called, so he was called Jacob. What and Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Interesting little note. Um, Esau is born first, comes out. He's hairy. His name's Esau, all right? That's why we don't see a whole lot of Esau's running around here, right? His name literally means hairy, all right? Hairy child. And then we get Jacob, and, and Jacob, this is just an interesting low point, is holding on to his brother's heel, right? Which his name literally means holding on to his brother's heel, all right? But what's interesting about Jacob's name, though, and what scholars will say is that as we look at the totality of who Jacob is, his derived meaning of his name means to supplant or to deceive. Jacob is known as a deceiver, by the actions that he would take. And, and so we see that in verse 27, the narrative continues. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. And notice this, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We see already in this family that there's some division, a favoritism of one over the other. 
And there needs to be reconciliation. There needs to be unity that is brought into this family. So today, I just want to ask you the question, who do you know that is a deceiver? In fact, I want to challenge you to write that person's name on your sheet of paper here. Who do you know is somebody that kind of works the angles to always get it to be their way? Who's someone that just kind of causes that disturbance and pain, manipulates and uses other people? And, and what's interesting is that as we dive into this journey of reconciliation, is that, is that oftentimes this is what pushes people away from talking about this kind of stuff. There was a book written by a woman named uh, Regina Schwartz in the book, The Curse of Cain, and she said this, that the thing that she hates about Christianity is that it creates this us versus them dynamic, that it creates a chosen people and a not chosen people. It creates an in crowd and an out crowd. It creates deceivers versus the honest. And, and if we just leave it at, hey, let's identify who are the deceiving people and call them out and say, hey, you can never come to church, we've missed the whole heart of what God is going to do. Because at the heart of who God is, is this ministry of reconciliation. Again, these words from 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. It says, and this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Notice this in verse 19, that that, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. It wasn't just the, the honest and not the deceivers. It wasn't the us or them. That God's mission and what he's doing is to reconcile the world, all people, to himself, that this is the mission of who God is. And, and truthfully, we find this so beautiful just by the one who wrote these words. Paul, the author here, if you know his story, was a murderer of God's people. In fact, his story, his conversion moment goes like this. He is appointing the death of Christians. All of a sudden, he is blinded, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and in that moment, we see a God who doesn't exact revenge or show his strong arm or pretend to just like bring all the heat and revenge. But instead, we see a God who brings reconciliation, who brings Paul to himself, who offers 
forgiveness, justice, and grace. And see, Paul's understanding of reconciliation is your understanding. It's my understanding of how God acts with me. That because of his grace, because of his mercy, his forgiveness and justice, he has brought reconciliation, unlocking the door and creating a way for us to be in relationship and to be in unity with him. So the question becomes, all right, I kind of know that. How do I live this out right now? And I just want to give you like four simple baby steps to enter the journey. It, these aren't going to fix all the problems of maybe the person that you wrote down before and all the drama that has existed for maybe years or just started out on this last holiday. But I believe that there's steps forward in the right direction. So the first step that I'd love to give you is this. The first step is to pave a future where there is a past. I think it's funny in my own evaluation of other people is that, that we can judge someone's character by one mistake that they make. But when it comes to us, we like to justify all of the circumstances as to why I acted the way that I did. It, and, and I know that maybe the name of the person that you wrote down here this morning, uh, maybe you decided to end that journey with them. I hope you would consider at least looking at what it would look like to go down this path. Just because I know that this can reopen wounds, this can uncover scars, but I do believe that, that there is beauty that can be found, that we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. Doesn't mean going back to the way things were, but it is a step forward to pave a future when there is a past. The second step that could be taken is just to stop the gossip. For some reason inside of our culture, it has become acceptable to just talk bad about people when they're not in the room or even when they are in the room. And and I personally think that is because this is how we receive most of our news. <laughs> we get like a quick little, like, uh, we want the information so fast, so quick. We, we're based on assumptions. We don't check everything that needs to be checked before it goes public and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's just natural to who we are. But I think it's important for us to understand that if we continue in this way, we're not going down the journey of reconciliation. We're actually moving backwards. I love how Martin Luther says this in his small catechism in the Eighth Commandment. This is a beautiful statement. 
The eighth commandment is simply that we shall not bear false witness against our neighbor. He says this. He says that we should fear and love God that we may not deceitfully belie, betray, slander, or defame our neighbor, but defend him, think and speak well of him, and put the best construction on everything. Think about that. Think about that with the name of the person that's on your sheet here. What would it look like to not belie, betray, slander, or defame, but to speak well and to put the best construction on everything? The third piece in a journey on this initial steps of reconciliation would be to pray for that person. In fact, this isn't an original thought. This is what Jesus would teach us to do. In Matthew 5, Jesus would say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I find personally that those that I have a hard time loving at times, that when I spend time in prayer, it changes how I speak about that person. I just offer up a prayer about that person, about the circumstance, the honesty that I'm having, having in that moment with that person, it changes the viewpoint of how I look at this journey. And lastly, the fourth tip that I would give to begin this journey is to embrace that reconciliation is a journey. It would be foolish for me to stand up here and say, all right, now all of your problems are fixed. No more drama. We're all good. No, I mean, obviously we would recognize that you have no clue as to how deep these wounds are. I know that this journey of reconciliation is that. I know that because when I look at the life of Jacob and Esau, it was a journey of reconciliation. And we're seeing the beginning part of it. But it's true of the relationships that we have as well. My hope and prayer for us as a church is that we would embrace this journey. That as our mission states to look, live, and love more like Jesus, that means that we're gonna lean into these conversations. That that we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. You're called to join in that journey. And we'll see next week that another step in that journey leads us to understanding what it truly means to repent. But we'll talk about that more next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're a God who brings uh, reconciliation to this world that you <laughs> that you came into this world to restore things and, and make, make it all new and I pray Lord uh, that as we live in light of that really good news that that wouldn't be something that just is held to our relationship with you but as you want it to be done, that that flows into the relationships that we have with others. I know this can be messy. It can lead us down paths that 
can be difficult and call us, call us to deeper conversations or bringing up tough things. I pray uh, that we would own that ministry of reconciliation, trusting that you promise to bring hope and to make all things new. So God, give us the courage to do that, to lean in. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.